seems like limitless opportunities to customize a medication for that particular animal, their flavor needs, and equally important is the owner needs. I always say that if Marty can't dose it, the animal is not going to get it. All of those things are part of compounding pharmacy. Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David List, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPause Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. This episode is graciously sponsored by Covetris Compounding. Covetris Compounding is proud to provide you and your clients an array of innovative dose forms, patient-specific prescriptions, and office-use formulations. Welcome, Positive Leaders. Oh, it's great to be back with you again. And we are super, super excited to have another super smart guest on the podcast today. Bruce Dell is a senior pharmacist with Covetris. He's a doctor of pharmacy and holds a Master of Science. Welcome, Bruce, to the Positive Leadership Podcast. Welcome, welcome. Good day, David and Andrea. I'm delighted to be part of this remarkable effort. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for coming. We're going to talk about all things compounding. So we do not read stuffy bios on the Positive Leadership Podcast. We really like guests to tell our listeners about them and their background. So without having to read your bio, tell us about yourself. Well, I think you've summed it up. I'm a senior pharmacist, and I have been around in this space for almost 45 years. I know. I'm as surprised as you. And uh, (laughs) part of that was an astounding opportunity to work and take care of America's heroes as a military pharmacist for 26 years and uh, came to veterinary medicine after that. So it's just been a great opportunity. I've loved every moment of this side of the house. And I I look forward to many more. I know that the odds are not there, but I look forward to many more. (laughs) (laughs) How did you end up, uh, you know, moving from human pharmacy medicine to veterinary medicine? You know, it was certainly not planned. Most of us, particularly in my generation, never had the opportunity for classical training. And so much of my training uh, was uh, on the job, working with vets, trying to understand some uh, of the nuances associated with this new group of patients, and then self-education. That's really been about the point of trajectory. There was no real thought involved. It was a great opportunity, and I snagged it and never looked back. Oh, that's great. So we always love to learn from our guests about new or interesting either books or podcasts or continuing education, you know, either conferences or 
units or modules that you know we think provide the listeners with a lot of interesting tidbits. So do you have a, a favorite you know, book or podcast or something that has really left a lasting effect on you that really influenced your career? I must say, well, a little sappy, I am a big fan of Don Plum and his works in this space. Anyone who has any time at all in, in veterinary medicine knows about Don Plum, who, who is, by the way, a pharmacist from Minnesota. And so I've really been influenced by Don's work and the progression of his information. So that has really been a tremendous opportunity for me to find my bearings, if you will, in veterinary medicine, particularly in pharmacy. Hmm. Excellent. So yeah, some of our listeners are kind of hardcore practice managers. And so Mm -hmm. for those guys, Plum's Veterinary Drug Handbook is the book about drugs in the veterinary space. I challenge all of you to go into your doctor's offices, you know, in the clinic and look on their shelf of, you know, all of their medical books. There will be a Plum's desktop reference in there. And Donald Plum has been basically the guy for veterinary pharmacy work and drug reference guides for many, many years, probably 20, 30 years I think the industry has changed because somebody can grab a book and look up a drug and look at dosage and interaction and research and everything. So he's really made the industry a lot of what it is. So for our hardcore veterinary manager folks who you know don't do teching and aren't doctors, that's one of the must-haves in your practice. I still go into clinics where older practitioners still have their cheat sheets and, and their laminated index cards pasted on countertops. Don Plum has revolutionized the way we seek out information for dosing and the suitability for therapeutics. That's funny that you say that, Bruce, because I remember, I mean, back in the day, I actually would write down dosages for doctors and laminate them Mm -hmm. (laughs) and put them by their workstation front and back, and I would categorize them. (laughs) So true. I still see it. Yeah, right. They're good cheat sheets, though. But now everyone looks up the plums on their phone. They can just have the app for Mm -hmm. it. But yeah. So today we're going to talk about compounding, which is a hot topic right now. Can you talk to us a little about what compounding is and what veterinarians can and can't do as far as compounding goes? Wow, big question. So let's break it down into some little (laughs) portions. Recall that compounding is primarily regulated by each state board of pharmacy. And as a result, there are different definitions depending on the state. But I think if you could distill all of that down, we tend to look at compounding as a custom-made product that fills a prescription, and that obviously is written by a practitioner. And we do that for instances in which there is either no available product that could be a back order or out of stock, that sort of thing, or if there is a commercially available product, it does not meet the therapeutic needs of the animal. And part of that is just a function of compliance. The animal won't take it. What can we do about it? And it's my estimation that about 60 to 70% of a typical veterinary practice pharmacy is made up primarily of human-centric drugs. And those strengths are not what we're looking for in this space. And those flavors are not what excites our patient base. And some of those dosage forms are not user-friendly for the owner. So that's where compounding comes to its fruition. It was never about duplicating cheaply an identical alternative. That was never the deal. It was always about bringing our resources to the forefront and customizing a product to enhance compliance. So you had mentioned every state has individual guidelines that we are to follow. How and where can veterinarians or practice managers find those guidelines? Are they somewhere that we can easily get to them to review what our state 
allows us to do? I think easily, again, is a tough definition because (laughs) of the state, right? And I would refer your listeners to a, a couple of sources. Certainly, as I mentioned, it's all regulated by the Board of Pharmacy. But I think that the where the rubber meets the road in, in our space is your board of veterinary practice or veterinary medicine, however that's labeled in the various states. So I would start there. Also, your VMAs have some serious input into this, and they can guide you in terms of the regulations and, and more importantly, the interpretations of those regulations. Mm. That makes sense. Well, I definitely gonna date myself here and slightly <laughs> out myself for probably what is horrible pharmacy practice. But I remember, and I think practices still do this, and and you know, I want to call attention to it. You know, we would take Batrol and Dexamethasone and, yeah. and Conifite and shake it up in a bottle and send it home with a pet. We would, you know, take three or four drugs, stick them in an IV bag and put it under the skin and let them all run in for a liter, or do the same in an IV. What else? We would just, you know, even ketamine Valium, right, which is doing that. So, you know, we do and used to just mix up drugs all the time. And I know that there's a difference in like injectables and parenteral stuff versus other stuff. But why can't or shouldn't we do that anymore, Dr. Dell? You you let us know about this. I think, you know, I mean, obviously, maybe there's some approach uh, in terms of the difference between, you know, a pharmacist and a clinical practitioner. But I'm sure there's a lot of things that we probably shouldn't really be doing or really just flat out can't. And, and why is that? Great question, David. So my line in the sand is mixing stuff, just as you mentioned there, for office use, for administration right now, a little of X, a little of Y, giving it to the animal, we're done. And anything that you might have left over, we waste. Where we start to see complexities are when you have something left intentionally to give to someone uh, something else down the road. And then that brings into play the assessment of stability, the proper labeling, those kind of things. But I, I think no one, no regulator, no inspector would give you a bunch of grief for mixing things at the time of administration. So that IV bag that will be infused only in that pet and, and then any anything left will be discarded, that Batril and Dex, those kind of things, fine. If you're going to, however, put 30 cc's of this along with 30 cc's of that, today's dose for for Fluffy is 0.5 cc's, leaving this stock bottle on our shelf. That's where you've gone to the dark side. And the other part of that would be things that you would redispense. Our world is full of folks that that take Metro tablets and crush them up and add it to a pleasant tasting base. And the intent is, is so genuine that it's hard to find fault with that. I cannot get this particular product in this animal for the next six or seven days until I can get someone to compound it for me. So I'm just going to, to mush these tablets up with a little bit of pleasant tasting liquid. Let's get this drug on board and let's get started with therapy. Seems great. But again, we, we start to find issues with stability and compatibility, particularly if you've added a couple of different drugs to the product. That's where our regulators and our inspectors are, are taking great exception. Uh, by and large, in every state that I know of will allow you to do the first part of this discussion. Mix up your stuff, give it right now, as long as there's nothing left over and you're not dispensing. After that, you're going to find that inspectors are, are looking long and hard at this, and they're holding the veterinary staff as accountable as they would hold me. 
for making up a seven or 14 day supply. So that's okay if you can withstand that type of scrutiny. Do you have training for the people who smushed those tablets up and made your product? Are you documenting that training? Is there retraining? How did you arrive at the beyond use date? Those kind of things. I think we would all agree that we probably don't have that level of intensity in our clinics. So we, we start to see some of our colleagues taking hits and uh, and being fined or written up for this type of thing. So that's kind of where we are with that, David. And this goes way beyond just adding water to Clavamox or or breaking up tablets for Mrs. Smith. But I will stop there and just mention that as a result of USP 800, uh, which I think was only a couple of years ago, there are drugs in our world that are now considered hazardous that maybe you and I didn't think about many years ago, and one of those would be methimazole. It was totally within our purvey to quarter tablets for Mrs. Smith because she couldn't do it. She was arthritic, and, and it was tougher to break those little tablets. And so so we did that for her with a razor blade, and we, we cut them up, and we put all those little nuggets in a bottle. But while that's okay because we haven't really manipulated a series of products and extended to beyond you stating, the fact that we are handling now a hazardous material like methimazole brings up a whole new set of standards according to USP 800. So there's a lot maybe our listeners don't know that's in the background that, that could influence it. And, and just talking with a veterinary pharmacist uh, on the phone will we'll give you some guidance on what you should be doing in your clinic, what you can do, and what absolutely you should not be doing. Mm, that's a great point. I actually yeah, wow. want to take a quick segue. So our veterinary practice managers that listen, and some of our listeners are practice owners too, you know, separating this from the clinical, they're responsible for compliance and regulatory compliance. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, whether or not they know what even the mechanism of action of methimazole is, most of our managers know generally what it does. We need to know, you know, about that kind of thing. So I just want them to take note, guys, that where would they be able to look more into the USP 800 guidelines. I believe me, I've looked at it. It's like 12,000 pages or something <laughs> insane. But and it's also, you know, borders on on recommendations, but a lot of the OSHA and, and other, you know, regulatory bodies are kind of adopting it. And so it's from what I've heard, it's basically you should just get compliant with USP 800, because it's probably going to become some sort of actual, you know, legal standard. So where would somebody even go to start looking at this? Because I think, as you mentioned, methimazole is in every practice in the country, you know, some of the chemo drugs and other stuff may be more applicable to, you know, an oncology practice, but methimazole for sure. And there's other ones too, that, you know, would surprise you. So where would a veterinary manager who's responsible for, you know, the safety of their staff go to kind of start their journey on USP 800? Wow, super questions, all of these. And David and Andrea, I would refer you to your board of veterinary medicine folks. Uh, There's usually a very small team, typically, in every state, but they can guide you through this. And then, as you have so adroitly pointed out, this is a recommendation from the United States Pharmacopeia. And whether or not your state has adopted it is crucial too. Most states just rubber stamp this stuff from the USP and it becomes part of their regulatory guidance. But some states don't. And so first I would check to see through your board of vet medicine if this is even a deal. However, I would mention to your listeners that this recommendation makes great sense because it was always about handling hazardous material. And so is methimazole teratogenic? Some studies would suggest that it might very well be. We don't want our people handling that kind of stuff. So there is some good news here. Someone has finally decided 
that here's a solid list. And up to this point, we've we've had lists like this, but you and I must agree that they've been heavily chemotherapeutic and we probably didn't have methimazole on it. We didn't have fluconazole on it and we didn't have spironolactone on it and tacrolimus, the things that we deal with hourly. And so I'm, I'm delighted that someone has taken the step to, to find these drugs based on science and the potential to damage our workers and pet handlers and get on with it. Not every state has a included this into their regulations. So I would certainly start there, David, with, is this a deal in my state? If it is, what are the mandates that the state is going to impose on me? Because it gets even worse. So for example, if you have hazardous material in your clinics, it's possible that you'll have to store them in a separate place. It's conceivable that you'll have to have material rapidly available in case of spills or ha- handling issues. And, and it's totally possible that the person that is responsible for putting that drug in that area or ordering it may very well have to have special training. And that special training has to be documented. That could all vary state to state. So I would start certainly with the Board of Veterinary Medicine, see where that goes. And in absence of any real positive information or, or any information at all from that group, then I would go to the board of pharmacy. I think you just overwhelmed me and I'm not even in practice anymore. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, right. One more regulatory thing I have to uh, I know. dig into and find out. Right? Well, and, and so many of your colleagues are responding by saying, look, I get it. This makes great sense. I don't even want a drug like that in my place. So let's just take those drugs away. And when we need those drugs, then we'll go to a suitable pharmacy that that's their problem. And so all of the handling. So for example, if you're going to cut Maudie's methimazole tablets up for her, you must be double gloved. You must have a gown a chemo gown on, and this must be done in some type of a suitable environment, not just a, a closet where your little pharmacy is, but this must be either done in a specially ventilated room or a containment hood that's specially ventilated. Well, that's beyond the purvey of many of our clinics. And so they're just getting out of the business altogether of having these drugs around. So all those methimazole scripts, nope, they're going to a suitable USP certified 800 pharmacy for dispensing. Sorry, Mrs. Smith, that you can't get it today from us, but here's why. And and it's an easy argument. So, So that's how many of your colleagues are handling this. Yeah. And I tell you, there's like so much I want to unpack in there. So let me take a step backwards to what you had said a few minutes ago about, you know, we're cutting it out for Mrs. Smith and Mm -hmm. we're mixing it with something palatable to the pet, because we all know that many cats and dogs, any of our pets don't take medications in their original form. Right. Correct. So talk to me about what compounding does then to help us formulate medications for pets specifically. So let's start with that. Great segue, Andrea. And and I would preface it all by saying sometimes you need more than a greenie. And and that's where we... Or a pill pocket. That's right. And so we need some help. And that's where compounding pharmacy really, really shines. That is, we have special formulations and, and we have access to different bases and remarkable flavoring, all that sort of thing. So this always is part of a triad. That is the, the doc who tells us what they're looking for. Then there's the family that tells us what they know about their pet's history. He likes chicken. He doesn't like this. He's crazy about tangerine. 
uh, okay, that's great for us to know. And then what kind of a dosage form, Mrs. Smith, would you, the caregiver, the medication giver, feel comfortable dosing? So for example, some folks uh, don't have the ability to measure small volumes on a syringe. That's out of the question. Okay, next step. How about a multiple tablet? So we kind of work through the armamentarium to find dosage forms that work well for everybody that will never be spot on. I mean, the real test comes when you give it to the cat or the dog. We'll see how we've done. If we're successful, that's great. But sometimes it's a little trial and error. And oh, by the way, sometimes that evolves. So you might have been able to give that medication to that cat without issue for first six weeks of therapy. And then one day, Nope, isn't going to happen. So we're we're back. Right, right. Yeah. And, and we don't have to look any farther yeah. than foods, right? You've elected a food that works great. Yep. Pretty soon they're right. thumbing their nose at you at a food that you've worked long and hard to get on board. So it happens right. with us too. And that so when we get that request for a refill, if it's refillable, then we'll always ask, so, so how's the flavor doing for you? Are you okay with the dosage warrant? Everything working right? Well? Because it could all change overnight. And so based on that, wow, it seems like limited opportunities for you, Andrea, to customize mm-hmm. a medication yeah, for amazing. that particular that. animal, yeah. their flavor needs, and equally important is the owner needs. I always say that if Maudie can't mm-hmm. dose it, the animal is not going to get what it. What good is it? Exactly. Right. And if she's struggling on a syringe at 0.176ml, mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to work well. No. So how do yeah. we make no. that concentration easier to see on a syringe? So let's put your dose into a tenth of a cc. That's the big mm-hmm. black mark, not all of those little marks in between. All of those <laughs> right. things are yeah. part of compounding right. pharmacy. Right. So I think many of our practices probably use a compounding pharmacy already, but whether or not they even know that it you know does compounding. Mm-hmm. But one of the roles that I think a manager or owner on the business side plays is, and it's something that I used to do every year, which is you know research the options for all of the services that we provide, whether it's internal like IT or you know our CPA, and you go to them every year and you say, mm-hmm. hey, you know mm-hmm. how are you doing? Can you negotiate price, et cetera, et cetera? So looking back to our managers, let's say they work with one compounding pharmacy currently, or they're looking at one, what should our managers do when they vet, quote unquote, when they vet a compounding pharmacy? What are some questions to ask? What is some literature to research? And what are some gold seals of approval or gold standards? They should say, you know, the compounding pharmacy we work for is going to have these things. Wow, you guys are good. Great questions. So the the line for me is always ask the piercing questions. And here's the overarching concern. Well, certainly quality is one, absolutely. But when Bad things happen, and we throw the net of liability out across the mass. I'm in there as our key people in the clinic, right? And so we all have to get somehow out of this net of liability. I have to prove that the product was potent to the label that it says, and if it was sterile, that it was sterile when when it got there and pyrogen-free and all that sort of thing. And then I'm done. So who's left? Well, that's the practitioner. And the practitioner then has to basically justify why they chose that drug from that particular pharmacy. So that drug is part of a discussion between the the pet owner and the practitioner, and that's, of course, the whole off-label thing. But why that pharmacy? If the product is sterile, please verify how that process is being done. And more importantly, the testing. The testing is absolutely crucial in this process. And inherent to that is... How is this determined and 
how often and how is it certified? Is the facility that's using certified? All of these really, really piercing questions. So part of that is about, well, really sometimes even verifying that. And, and to that point, you may very well want to see it a token quality assurance report. Any chance you could send me the results of the final test of the batch that I just got yesterday? I'm just curious to see how how you document stuff. I think some of my colleagues are intimidated by that level of curiosity, and they shouldn't be. This is an opportunity for me to prove to you that I'm as good as I say I am. And anyone who says, yeah, we don't do that, you should hang up because that's how they will respond when that net is thrown, I suspect. But ask these piercing questions. Are you capable of uh, handling USP 800 drugs? And what's the typical training look like in a pharmacy technician who's making up suspensions and tablets for me? All of these really, really piercing questions you should absolutely ask at least once a year, if not more frequent, as things come up. Wow, we haven't got to look any farther really than the NECC debacle back in 2013 and 2012, where 75 humans lost their lives as a result of poorly made uh, injectable steroids. The infections were devastating. And while 75 folks lost their lives, to be sure, hundreds of people are still suffering as a result of poorly compounded things. And at that time, they were not inspected as rigorously as things are now, obviously. We've made some changes as a result of this. And had someone looked at some of these piercing questions, they may very well have prevented this. There may have been a red flag. So kind of a long answer for you, David, Andrea, but I would absolutely have a, a list of things that I'm curious about. If you're bringing powder in from another country, how is that analyzed or how is it assayed? How do you determine sterility? What are you doing? Are you just holding this up to the light and looking for critters? Or are you sending this off, you know, quarantining this product? Are you sending it off then to have it analyzed for pyrogens and endotoxins and that sort of thing? There are a ton of questions that I would ask if I were a practitioner knowing that my license and my career is on the line. You know, those are so fantastic. And I, I have to say, as a practice manager, I would have never even thought of asking any of those questions. And never did I have even any of my veterinarians have me ask, or did they ask any of those questions We're sending medications out? I really appreciate the depths of that answer because I think it revolutionizes how we vet out our compounding pharmacies or any pharmacy. I would suggest that many of us vet out those pharmacies by going to a yellow page and looking up pharmacy, comma, compounding, comma, veterinary. And here it is. And we tend to all agree that all pharmacies are the same. You could not be further from the truth. While there are some big rock standards, that's true. It for example, hasn't been all that long ago in one of our states in this great country, you could be a compounding pharmacy if you had a reference book and you had a sink. And that was it. Here is your license. And so make no mistake, gentle readers and listeners, that they're not all the same. And it, it requires your effort to find the one that meets your needs in your area based hopefully on quality and not just delivery and price. Quality costs money. And that's what you're really looking for. You want to be able to say to that pet owner that you know we're using the highest quality possible and they're not all the same. So I have a question and I will probably say this wrong, but isn't there a, I think it's called VIPS, where there's a pharmacy approval list of somehow some way that they are approved 
through a special something rather, and they're VIPs approved? Great point, Andrea. But I think the one that I would be looking for as a practitioner is something called PCAB. And PCAB is Pharmacy Compounding Accreditation Board. For me, this is the Sentinel accrediting group that comes into a pharmacy and basically just ravages a typical pharmacy. And the points of consideration are in the thousands that they address. When you get approval or accreditation from a crediting group like PCAB, yeah, okay, someone has been around in this space a long time and has come out to this pharmacy and looked at everything to include the font size on the label, the storage conditions of the chemicals, every single component of the formulation, uh, the record keeping, the recall process, all of that. That's where I would go. And there is another group and it's called the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy. And then their survey is similarly intense. And I would look to those folks as well. That's super helpful. Can you tell me? Besides the regulatory things that we have already talked about, can you tell me what are some of the new, maybe even trending hot topics in compounding? Well, I think any <laughs> any hot topic in this space is going to involve regulatory concerns. We have some things coming up in the next year that's just going to tip this industry uh, on its end. And so many of us are scrambling to try to understand what contingency can be employed if some of these things happen. So we have that. And then I think our constant struggle is being a formidable player in each state's pharmacy regulations. I cannot tell you how many times I have gone to a state board of pharmacy who has sent out their minutes and, and now we have a new regulation. And we look at this as well, how in the world is this possibly implementable at the animal health level? And when you call them, I don't know that we even considered that issue. And that's true. They don't. Their job and it's is so hu- unfortunate. human health. That's their space. And and I'm I'm happy that they do it. But they don't take our world into consideration. And so perfect example is, is a typical state that does not allow the office stocking of compounds. For one reason or another, they've chosen not to. Okay, well, that would include apomorphine, that would include buprenorphine, that would include gabapentin, things that you have to have right now for some of these in-my-clinic emergencies. And that's crazy. We absolutely have a, a role to provide emergent care, and some of those products are only available through compounding. And yet, you're, you're saying I can't have that? Well, that just doesn't make any sense. It's yeah, not like it's I can not acceptable. Send, it's right. Yeah. I can't just send this family to any CVS or Walgreens. If I don't have it, they're not going to get treated. So it's a huge disconnect in this space. And we're constantly battling this. And, and your VMAs are our first line of defense in this because they work for the membership, right? And they have the connections with the vet board and consequently they all have access to their state boards. So that's what mm. I consider to be our greatest controversy, conflict, mm-hmm. big rock issues. Yeah, right. Is making mm. the state board of pharmacies understand our role and our needs and also trying to implement this with, with meaningful mm-hmm. regulations. Sometimes it's an exclusion for veterinary care, that's okay, or different dispensings. For example, some states don't allow you to dispense a compounded material. You can dispense as much mm. Batril as you want to out of that stock bottle, but you may not technically dispense 
any of those prednisolone meltable tablets other than that one dose in the clinic. Well, that's absurd. So uh, mm-hmm. we need some consistency and, yeah, uh, right. uh, and we need to be recognized at the table. Mm. Fair enough. Good points. <laughs> Thanks for, for sharing some yeah. of the challenges that, that mm-hmm. you face. So if a clinic does some compounding, or let's say they, they even on an extreme, they don't, and they could start working with a compounding pharmacy, it seems like it's a really great thing to get the word out, to tell their clients that they offer this service, that they create custom medications for the pets, you know, that they would maybe start with an off-the-shelf medication. And if that doesn't work, they have a lot of other options. So, you know, hopefully you can help give, you know, information here, especially from the pharmacist and the and the clinical aspect. What are some really effective marketing strategies that clinics can use to advertise compounding services to, to their clients? Well, I, I think, uh, David, the marketing is at, at the point of service and and not part of an advertising campaign. For example, we offer transdermals. No, that's that's not it. Because customizing a, this is highly dependent on individual needs versus a big, broad brush approach to customizing this medication. So my answer to that would, would be about certainly marketing to individual consumers. You know, your, your, your animal has this particular infection. Luckily, there is a chemical for this. It isn't commercially available. It is available, however, through other sources, notably compounding. That's where you have your off-label discussion. So there's that. Then we can also talk about, I, I know how fussy your animal has been historically in the past with medications. We have access to different flavors and different dosage forms. And here are your options. So I, I think marketing is more at the point of service. So I have a little bit of follow-up to that sure, then. Sure. In in the sense of not just marketing to our clients specifically, but what are one or two really good action items that we start tomorrow in our practices with in regards to compounding? I feel like you've given us so many different things that have put my little hamster on the wheel and I don't even know where to start. So tell me, when I get into my practice on Monday, what do I do first off? Well, first of all, I think there's a great stigma still around compounding. We still have practitioners who think of this as as voodoo science and that these products are made in a Sears garden shed out in the middle of a desert somewhere. And those folks could not be further from the truth. Yes, Compounding right. is done in, in very sophisticated labs and, oh, by the way, in some states with a sink and a book. Uh, but there is a place for compounding and there is no reason to subject these animals to pill shooters, for example, or or, or chaotic dosing. How in the world? I, I get that you, you have this certain dose in mind, but it comes out to a seventh of a tablet. Nobody is going to do that well. Right, what do you so we embrace compounding to make that process easier? How do we facilitate the dosing process to make compliance easier? Nothing's going to happen. You may be the best therapeutician, the outrageously top of the clinicians in your field. But if Marty can't give it and the animal doesn't want to take it, we're at a dead standstill. So how do we fix this? And that's what compounding is all about. Yes, there are some things that should not be compounded. That's true. And that's a discussion between a practitioner and a veterinary pharmacist. Got it. But the vast majority of these products have a real role. So I think there's a mindset that we have to approach. Then when you've got to that level, then I think we need to go back to the the assessment of the quality of the people that you're using, or if you're not using anyone, then format a series of questions to a perspective and and let them convince you with 
lab reports and training records and things like that, that the place is a solid player for you as a, as a compounding pharmacy. Fantastic. If you could give one piece of advice to our listeners today, what would it be and why that? Seek quality and know that quality comes with a cost. It's outrageous how many calls in the course of a day I and my colleagues get about price. I know price is a huge concern, and I get that. It's a concern at the human world, and it's a concern at our level as well. And we don't have that kind of third-party reimbursement for everybody either. So I get that the price is an issue, but there's there's more to that discussion. And often it's about quality. I am occasionally challenged about beyond-use dates, for example. So this practitioner is using a compound from this particular pharmacy, and the dating on that is 60 days. And when they tried our product, it had much greater dating, 180 days. And they didn't take exception to the guy who made it for 60. They took exception to the guy who made 180. And and they almost always do. How in the world did you come up with that number? And so I spent $1,000 to get that number so you could have the assurance of six-month dating. I would instead, Doc, ask your other colleague how they got to 60 and why they didn't pursue greater dating, those kind of things. Quality costs money. And and there's more to this equation than finding the cheapest or finding the quickest. That's where I would go. Fantastic. I love it. So you don't necessarily work in practice. However, with your great life experience, I am sure that you have had an encounter either with a client or employee or a practice owner or I don't know, even a different space in your life. Just these moments where our chin hits the ground in total (laughs) and complete shock and your eyes pop out of your head like little puglets and your palm hits the forehead and you're like, no freaking way. This just happened. Oh my gosh, you can't make this shit up. Can you tell me your story? I can. And it involves an owl. And this farmer had been out in his field. He saw something on the periphery of his plowed field. It was moving around. And when we talked to him, he said it looked like just an old jacket blowing in the wind. It turns out it was an owl. And he was flailing around. The owl, as we now know, had a systemic fungal infection. And when the farmer took it to a wildlife preserve. uh, And it was seen by the practitioner that they called us and and said, I need some type of a systemic antifungal for this owl. What do you got? We arrived at fluconazole. And and now is the sentinel moment where we say, okay, well, how do you want this? You want this in a liquid? How are you giving it to uh, an owl? Well, then it comes down to, well, I don't think he's going to be able to take a capsule or any of those guys. Well, what does he eat? Well, he eats mice. Okay. So as you know, they have frozen mice in a pack, right? And so you can get 10 little mice in a little tray pack and it's frozen. And that's what they give to animals like that as a food source. So we put the fluconazole into a mouse. Then they gave the mouse willingly, easily no way. to an owl. And that's how they dose fluconazole. It was only once a day. It worked out great. And we had a, a real success story. But I never huh. for a moment <laughs> after all these years thought that I would be putting oh, fluconazole wow. in a mouse to give wow. to an owl. And uh, everybody wow. Yeah, great story that's, that's a different cool. pill pocket oh my god <laughs> right 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 <laughs> oh, too funny it is so bruce as we kind of start to wrap up the show this is the section that we call the rapid fire so we'll dive right in 
Tell me about your most epic failure that has left a lasting impact. Well, once upon a time, I thought that making a nose spray of diazepam to stop a seizure made great sense. And so we started our discussion with very small doses and we had a little atomizer that we put onto a syringe and, and you know, it worked just great. So we'd, we would take two milligrams of diazepam and solubilize it in a small amount of fluid and, and they would squirt it into the nose. This is all in a trial, it's still done at a clinical level. And then evaluate the uh, the response. And it just seemed like the greatest thing. And I was confident that we were going to make such a difference in the, in seizure therapeutics. But that was a two milligrams. And it turned out that when we got up to higher strengths, like 15, like 20 milligrams, that the solubility just wasn't wasn't on our side. And uh, it clotted the atomizer and it just f- failed to shoot into the nose that's something I should have considered much earlier in the process. Tell me about your proudest moment. Well, I must say that we were instrumental in customizing an ear preparation for otitis therapy. And and now I think it's considered to be mainstream therapy in many clinics. So I think bringing this to the forefront has been just a remarkable opportunity for us to influence the way clinicians treat otitis. Why veterinary medicine? What do you love about our profession being a human pharmacist? Super question. What I love about this space is the diagnostics of a disease state and then the successes. It's astounding. We get cards and letters virtually daily from owners who have either sent us a picture of their pet that has been brought back from the brink of death because of a certain disease right now, or an owner who sends us a picture of their cat and it says, you know, because of the way we were able to get this drug into this animal, we had probably two or three more years of quality of life. Those are moving statements that we just are humbled by. Self-care, how do you practice it? How do you decompress? (laughs) Well, I... Certainly enjoy biking and a little fishing on the side. I'm not successful at that, but I just enjoy the opportunity to get out and commune with nature. I live in Phoenix where we have great bike trails and mountains. So I think much of those activities are centered around that sort of thing. How do you balance work and life? And do you experience any work guilt in that balance? You know, my bride would tell you that I don't find work as a stress. I deal with my friends every day. And how lucky is that? My practitioner calls are wonderfully challenging. We all have a goal in mind, and that's enhancing the health of an animal. And whether it be working with an owner to facilitate that process or or intimately changing the dosage form for a pet, there's that. Maybe it's a doc who's read about a chemical that's just not available in this country. Can we get it? Can we make it? Those kind of things. Every encounter is, is a fun encounter. What keeps you up at night, things that stress you out or cause you anxiety in your role, business, life? Well, relative to this job, it's regulations. It's usually goofy stuff that uninformed people don't understand about our world. And that is so frustrating. Had I known that it was coming, I might have been able to intervene. Had we 
been consulted. We could have offered our opinion, but oftentimes these decisions are made in a vacuum, almost exclusively centered around human health without regard to our space. And those things are incredibly frustrating because once it's a law, it takes forever to change it. And those are just crazy makers to me. And what gets you up and out of bed in the morning? What excites you to start your day? (laughs) Well, I'm sorry to tell you, it's this. I love working with our sales team on some of the challenges that they're facing out there. I love dealing with practitioners and technicians about some of the challenges they're having. It's it's a great gig and uh, it excites me. It challenges me. And after all these years at my tender age, it's still a pleasure getting up in the morning and answering the phone. Awesome. Oh my gosh, Bruce. Well, thank you thank so much. Thank you so Come much. On. This has been a this pleasure. Well, your questions, I must say, were you. incredibly poignant and I appreciate the opportunity to respond to them. These are <laughs> precisely the concerns in, in our world and, and you've hit the nail on the head. I could not have been better at drafting questions. Excellent. Good to know and have a great weekend. Hope I was of some value for this purpose. And if you want us to come back, let me know. There's so much to talk about. Sounds good. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you again for all your assistance. I love the opportunity. Hey, Andrea here. Have you seen our social media pages? Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, www.positiveleaders.com. And if you like what you see there, be sure to give Rhonda and Linda a shout out over at Dog Days Consulting. They do all of our social media management. They even built our website. Those ladies can work some creative magic for your business and your brand. Check them out on Facebook at Dog Days Consulting or visit their website at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your You Can't Make This Shit Up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast. And be sure to rate us. Check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane. The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrea Crabtree David Liss and their guests only, may not be current, and do not represent the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever, is expressly disclaimed.